Well, good morning, church. All right, now the rest of you. Good morning, church. Go, <laughs> oh, yeah. I ask for it when I ask the second time. Just leave well alone. We're going to be looking at this passage here in Romans in a moment. It's the book we're in right now in our sermon series. But there was a story of a couple who was pulled over by the police. And the police officer asked the man to show him his license and asked, Did you realize that you were doing 65 miles an hour back there in the 35 miles per hour zone? The man answers, Officer, that would be very unlike me. I strive to obey all the rules of the road and try to never exceed the speed limits. Well, the wife chimes in and says, to be honest, officer, that's not true at all. He drives like a maniac. His driving scares me half to death. Okay, the policeman says, you broke the law, so I'm going to have to write you up for speeding. Then the policeman says to the man, I also noticed when you drove by me, you didn't have your seatbelt on. Officer, the man replies, with all due respect, I value life too highly. Buckle up, that's my motto. Again, the wife chimes in, this is not true. He never wears that thing. You'd probably find cobwebs on his seatbelt. Well, by this time, as you can imagine, the husband's fuming. He turns to his wife and he says, what are you trying to do to me? Can't you mind your own business for a change? The officer sticks his head to the window and asks, ma'am, does he always talk to you this way? No, she replies, only when he's had too much to drink. (laughs) It just keeps getting worse and worse. You know, I can only imagine what life is like for this couple at home, right? The law. The law. I couldn't help but think of the song, I Fought the Law and the Law Won. I mean, very powerful, well-written song. (laughs) Not really. The law. The law. (laughs) That's not happening. Back when we went through the story of redemption seen from cover to cover in the Bible, you might remember a few years ago now, we came to this matter of the law. Over 65% of first five books of the Bible have laws. Now we hear the word law and we cringe. I mean, there are pleasant words like vacation, relaxation, romance, sunshine, freedom. I mean, we like those words. Most of us don't get too excited about the word law. We hear law and we think uh, IRS, tax code, speed limits, governmental bureaucracy, and our companies micromanaging through policies and rules. We don't particularly care for the word law. I mean, it kind of rubs us the wrong way. Well, the section of Scripture that we're looking at this morning in the book of Romans has kind of as a theme for this morning, this this matter of the law, the law. So I want you to turn with with me in your Bibles to Romans uh, chapter 2 as we continue in Romans and our series on the gospel changes everything. That's what we've been looking at as we picked it up in the beginning of Romans. We're in chapter 2, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 12 through 29. Now, it's a pretty long section. Now, I remind you that my approach to our time in Romans is to keep a pace that grabs a hold of the main concepts without attempting to cover every verse throughout this jam-packed book. But trust me, Even in these broad strokes, there is plenty to chew on. 
Now, Romans chapter 2, the passage we're looking at this morning, beginning with verse 12 through 29, it's part of a bigger section that runs from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. And the major thread that ties all of that bigger section together is that God is just, God is right in judging sin for all stand guilty before him. And chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20 is often viewed as bad news in desperate need for some good news. Now, it's when we get to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and we will get there, but it's there that that there's good news just burst forward. Now, the temptation may be to skip all this stuff here and get to and jump over to Romans 3, verse 21. I mean, I had that temptation this past week. Let's just skip this. Let's make a bigger block here so we can get there quicker. No, we we need to resist that temptation. I need to resist that temptation because the gospel shines the brightest when seen against the backdrop of sin. The gospel shines the brightest when seen against the backdrop of sin. And what's wrong with the world is countered by what God has done about it. And so I want to keep bringing you back to the good news, the gospel, and that God has done something, the only thing that could be done with the problem of sin. He's done the one thing we cannot do ourselves. Because we cannot save ourselves no matter how good we may think we are or by following certain rules or keeping the law the best that we can. You know, there's really no security in trying to be good enough. We must always wonder, what is good enough? Have I arrived there? What is good enough? There's no security in that. Here's the bottom line for this morning. Our security does not rest in whether we are religious or irreligious. Our security rests in Christ alone. Our security does not rest in whether we're religious or irreligious. Our security rests in Christ alone. And the section this morning that we're looking at, we encounter two groups of people, those who have the law, referring to the Jews, and those who were not given the law, referring to the Gentiles. And so the two categories of people here are the religious and the irreligious. And both, religious, irreligious, will stand before the true righteous judge in the courtroom, God himself, for God does not show favoritism. And that's where he ended last Sunday, chapter 2, verse 11. And that leads to what comes next here in Romans 2, verses 12 and 13. I want to start there, for this is a a kind of a general statement here. And then Paul's going to flesh this out in the verses that we'll be looking at this morning. But we have to begin with verse 12, okay? You have to really put your thinking caps on this morning to stay with us. But I hope you're looking at the passage with me. Verse 12, Romans 2, for all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now Paul here exposes the hypocrisy of being hearers only. He's not suggesting at all that we're saved by works. Nothing else in Romans would would, would go that direction. He's exposing the hypocrisy of being hearers only. 
And what I think he's saying is doers of what they hear and know is proof positive of a life changed by the gospel. So doers of what they hear and know is proof positive of life changed by the gospel. And Paul's going to go to great lengths and explain that God judges the Jews and the Gentiles by two different standards. Jews, they were given the law, so they would be judged by the law. The Gentiles weren't given the law, so God's judgment would be according to a different standard. And so he's going to address the Jews, the religious ones, when we come to verses 17 through 29. But first, we have to look at the Gentiles. He addresses the Gentiles, the irreligious group. Now, keep in mind where it's all headed. Our security does not rest in whether we're religious or irreligious. Our security rests in Christ alone. So let me ask the question, how will God judge? How will God judge? Well, first of all, God judges according to the light given. Verses 12 through 16. God judges according to the light given. Now the group here in these verses, 12 through uh, uh, 16, the religious, irreligious people. And what's the standard by which they will be judged? We often have this question, what about people who don't have the same access to the Bible that we have? That's the objection being answered here. All right, verse 14. All right, you're going to really have to lock in here. Verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences are also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. And you all go, huh? What, what's that? Five times in two verses we see the word law. It's one long sentence that says, they don't have the law, yet they have the law. All right, let me try and break this down. First of all, it says that Gentiles do not have the law, okay? That seemed pretty straightforward. Then secondly, Paul says that the Gentiles by nature do some things that the law requires. And then thirdly, Paul says that they are a law for themselves, And lastly, he mentions that this unwritten code in the heart of every person called the conscience either condemns him or can vindicate him. Still not clear? Let me put it this way. Since every person has a conscience and every person innately, inwardly has a sense of right and wrong, God will judge according to how he's lived up to that standard. There is something incredibly important here about human nature. And just as we saw back in verse 20, a couple weeks ago of chapter 1, that creation bears witness to God. Here we see that our conscience bears witness to God. That through the external voice of creation and the internal voice of conscience, God has made himself known in some sense to everyone. There will be a lot of excuse. So here's an indicator of God's existence. The moral law is stamped on the hearts of all people by their maker, and it points to a creator. Now, Francis Schaeffer speaks of the invisible tape recorder um, with this invisible microphone that's around everyone's neck. It only records when you say someone should or he ought to or no one should ever. 
And all those oughts and shouldn'ts is the internal witness to a creator. C.S. Lewis refers to it as the argument from arguing. And Lewis says this. He says, our lives have a shared rule book known as the moral law. This we all know. For when we quarrel and accuse each other of wrong or unfairness, we are in essence saying, hey, you broke the rules. Where'd that come from? And so we say things like, that's not fair. It isn't right. You shouldn't do this. And by those statements and others like them, we actually betray the truth that we believe there's a moral standard. That's why the U.S. Treasury Fund back in 1811 set up a, they called, conscience fund. It's for those who have defrauded the government, they can anonymously send $5 to Washington, D.C. to kind of relieve their conscience. Big deal, five bucks. But since that time, almost $3.5 million has been received from guilt-ridden citizens. (laughs) See, no one can really say, I've never done wrong, because everyone has violated his conscience at least once, and and, and likely really many, many, many times. And when our conscience functions as it ought to, it informs us of our guilt. It's like the shoplifter who wrote a letter to a department store that he had robbed from over the years. And he said, you know, I've just become a Christian and I can't sleep at night. I can't sleep at night because I feel so guilty. So here's $100 that I owe you. Then he signs his name and a little postscript at the bottom. He says, and if I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) Don't ignore your conscience. We can disregard our conscience, but do so at our own peril. And some have compared the conscience to a warning light that goes off. I think rather than a warning light that goes off, it might be better to view our conscience as a thermostat, as Larry Osborne observed. You see, the thing with a conscience, like a thermostat, is we can adjust it to a higher or lower temperature. This is why what we once said we would never do, we can now do without violating our conscience. We just adjusted the temperature. And we can say, wrongly, my conscience is clear. I've seen a lot of things done with that statement. My conscience is clear on this one. That doesn't doesn't excuse you. Because we can simply recalibrate our conscience. If we're the standard, and our conscience is set to that temperature, it won't click on until it reaches that. And so we set set it to our standard, of course, not God's. And so it may not click on when we violated God's standard. See, in that sense, it is a terrible warning system. Because you can recalibrate. A man was talking to a psychiatrist. And he said, I've been misbehaving. I've just done wrong. And my conscience, my conscience is really bothering me. So the psychiatrist responds, so what you want then is some tools that will strengthen your willpower. And Mary replied, no, actually, I was thinking of something that would weaken my conscience. Isn't that the truth? And that's where we're at. We see that today. There seems to be no sense of right and wrong, and no feeling badly over wrongs, even crimes committed. 
Scripture speaks of the capability we have of searing the conscience. Dangerous place to be. In other words, bring it down to our lives. Over time, over time, habitual sin can erode and warp our consciences to the point of utter dysfunction. You can actually lie so much that you actually believe your lies. I think some might be so self-deceived that they could even pass a lie detector test. Now, whether this conscience is seared or set at a very high temperature of our own standards before going off, God will judge according to the light they have been given. They have a conscience built within them. He'll judge according to that. You can say, well, I don't know that it was a God. Yes, you do. Through the internal voice of conscience, God has made himself known. They may have suppressed that truth. They may sear that conscience. But God's fair judgment will judge them according to the light they have been given. They might not have had the scriptures. They might not have special revelation of God's commandments of right and wrong. But they do have some knowledge of its standards internally. You ought. You shouldn't. And a juvenile center was a marker board with a statement on it. Here, we live by the Ten Commandments. Here, we live by the Ten Commandments. Well, one new arrival, a real rebel, he saw the sign, cursed the statement, cursed the law, and declared, I'm not going to be following that. Well, every single day, one of the staff members took something from his locker. This went on for several days. A staff member would go to the one, this one boy's locker and take something that belonged to him. And each day, the boy would discover something else was missing. And then, out of uh, frustration and exasperation, the boy cries out, a bunch of thieves around here. Gee, wonder how that changed. The boy then decided, okay, I'm going to live by the Ten Commandments. Maybe that's a good idea. And we have it internally. Whenever we use the word should and ought, we betray even our alleged conviction that truth is relative. It'd be like a professor grading papers however he wished. He said, students that wear glasses will get A's, and students not wearing glasses, they flunk. Invariably, a student, if not all the students, would complain, your grading system is not fair. What you ought to do is grade us according to how well we know the material. See, we have, all of us have built within a standard to which all grading and all judgments should conform. Now, we can pre- suppress it, and God will judge according to the light we have been given. They may not have had the scriptures, may not have had other opportunities, but inside all people have been given a conscience, and all people will be judged by that. And God is the fairest judge we could ever know. When will this judgment take place? So well, I'm not going to look at it. You can jot it down, look at it later. But in verse 16, it tells us this will happen on that day when God judges all people up against the gospel. Verse 16 tells us that on the day of judgment, even our secrets only known to God will be judged. And that leads me to my second uh, point here in, in, in answering, you know, how does God judge? Secondly, God judges according to what is, what is on the inside. God judges according to what is on the inside. And so the argument at this point from the Jewish people might be, surely, Paul, you can't possibly treat us as if we were no different from the pagans, the Gentile outsiders. And so then beginning with verse 17 now, Paul gives a lengthy description of Jewish privileges. 
They've been given the law, ultimately, and they've been given circumcision. And Paul's point here, and mentioning that, is that the law itself and the act of circumcision does not guarantee the Jews immunity to judgment. And what Paul does here is he he kicks out from underneath them their false security. They're trusting in something they shouldn't be trusting in. And so Paul comes along and goes, oh, that's what you're trusting in? And he kicks out from underneath them their false security. And you go, well, that's kind of mean. But actually, to poke at someone's false security, perhaps is the most loving thing we can do. Suppose you're about to put all your life savings into an insurance policy to protect you and your spouse and your family. And you're counting on that purchase for security and a peace of mind. And suppose I found out that this company you're investing in was a scam. And just before you're about to sign on the dotted line, I stop you and say, no, 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 don't do it. This company doesn't even exist. The whole thing's a fraud. Would you respond with, can you just leave me alone? I like my false security. I had a peace of mind. Now you're ruining everything. If I could prove to you that it was a fraud, you'd be thankful that I messed with your false security. Paul messes with their false security. And if, that, if there's that, some of that for you in this room, I hope I knock that underneath you too this morning. Well, let God's word do it. See, because Paul, he doesn't want people, the people to whom he's writing, to rest their hopes in something false. What were they trusting in? Their Jewish privileges. All right, look at verse 17. Privilege number one. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, privilege number one. Privilege number two, if you rely on the law. Privilege number three, and you brag about your relationship to God. Fourth, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law. Then he goes down in verse end of 20. He says, you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. But do you see it? They were placing their hopes in the possession of the law. Now, I need, I want, we need to be clear about the purpose of the law. So I just need to stop here and, and, and spell this out a little bit, just to make sure we're all on the same page. It was, the law was never intended to save anyone. It was never given as a moral ladder that people could climb up to to earn God's favor. We should never think of the Old Testament was about being saved by the law, and the New Testament is about being saved by grace. There's no such dichotomy presented in scriptures. It wasn't, keep this law, and then you'll be my people. It was by grace God called them out to be his people. And God redeemed them. In the book of Exodus, God redeemed them by bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. And the basis of the law then was built upon the fact that he brought them out of Egypt in the first place. He redeemed them by grace Then he gave them the law to live by, his standard for them to live as as those who have been redeemed and called by God. And the problem here is, is they thought all was well because they were God's chosen people who had been given the law and they had a unique special relationship with Yahweh God and they were trusting in that. But you see, the law was meant to direct us to our true source of security. It's been said this way. The law is the light that reveals how dirty the room is, not the broom that sweeps it clean. 
The law tells us how to live, but doesn't give us the power to obey it. Now, most of you, many of you, perhaps, have been in an MRI. I have. And pretty much, it's a painless procedure once you get past any nervousness about enclosed spaces, and I don't like enclosed spaces, and obnoxious noise, and being still for 20 minutes, that's no small thing for me either. (laughs) Well, MRI scan, though, is used to examine the inside of the human body in high detail. An MRI can show you anomalies of the brain or tumors in various parts of the body. It can show you injuries in the back and the knee and, and many other places. But the MRI tube shows you that something is wrong, but it has no power to fix it. The doctor doesn't discover an abnormality and go, hey, I need to get you in the MRI tube as quickly as we can. We've got to fix this. No, it has no power to heal. It can't make you better. It just shows you that something is wrong. That is what the law does. It shows us that something is wrong, that we're we're sick, that, that that it cannot heal us, it has no power to save us. It shows us that we're sick and we need a savior. Because when your life is placed in the spiritual MRI, it shows you that you lied, that you cheated, that you failed at some point in keeping the law. It shows us that we're sinners and need a savior, but has no power to change us. That's what Paul's trying to point out here. So he kicks out their false security to lead them to the true source of their security and confidence. But he pokes at another false security first. Not only were they trusting in the law, secondly, the Jews had a false security in their trusting of the ritual of circumcision. At the center of true Jewish piety was circumcision. Now, circumcision, is, honestly, it's an awkward symbol for us. Circumcision, though, was a God-given sign and seal of God's covenant with his people. We could liken it to baptism. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. No one should rest in the practice of baptism for their salvation. Circumcision for the Jew and baptism for the church today help no one without experiencing the reality to which the signs point. That's what he says in verse 28. Look at me at verse 28. This is what it boils down to. A man's not a Jew if he's only at one outwardly, nor circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew, spiritually now, if he's one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code, Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Do you see it? It's not ritual. It's regeneration. It's not what's done outwardly, but God judges according to what's on the inside. And you know, you may be here and you have had all kinds of advantages. Um, Growing up in a Christian home, went to a Christian school, had plenty of Bibles in the home, taught Bible stories, went to a youth group, presently going, whatever it is. But you are not saved by any of that exposure. You're not. What matters to God is a deep inward work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we can have this false security that all is okay because we're faithful churchgoers or we do all the right stuff outwardly and we say, I'm resting and trusting in that. Do you have a false security? 
Now, I can't help but think of the sinking of the Titanic. I hate using the illustration of the Titanic because everyone did illustrations of the Titanic for years and years and years. But it fits here, so I'm using it. Many people in that old scene, many people felt secure that they refused to get into lifeboats only to perish. And when there's no security, we do people a great service to tell them that and point them to the lifeboat. I want to point you to the lifeboat. Where's your confidence? Where's your assurance? The gospel changes everything because Jesus was cut off for us. He was judged in our place. We can now have a new heart. In Jesus, there is now no condemnation. In Jesus, there is complete forgiveness. And so if you're here this morning, you know Christ, then God looks upon you and he sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the fulfillment of the law in Christ. And so in Jesus now, we have a new attitude toward the law. Since Jesus died to fulfill the requirements of the law, we're set free to do what we ought to do because we want to do it. And the power to do what we ought to do is because we've been given a new heart by the grace of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller put it this way, a sign of regenerated, circumcised heart is when what you ought to do and want to do are the same thing. And I said in the first verse, I wish I wrote that. It's a, good, it's a great statement. Sign of regenerated, circumcised heart that something's happening inside of you is when what you ought to do and want to do are the same thing. Do you have a new heart? Are you resting in Christ alone? Listen, this is not just for, for the unbelievers that we might think of are in the room. This is for believers. Because child of God, are you embracing the gospel as you live out your faith every week in Christ alone? Is that why you're doing that? Do you do what you do? Because in some way you think by doing them, you'll earn even greater favor with God. He'll love me more if I do these things. Terrible thinking. Or do you do what you do, knowing you are forgiven, knowing you are justified, knowing you are righteous, and that all of that is on the basis of the work of Christ alone? You go to any local fitness gym, or maybe you choose to use equipment in your own home, I'm sure you're all aware of treadmills. I read recently of the history behind the, behind the treadmill. In Victoria, um, Victorian England, treadmills weren't found in air-conditioned health clubs. They were found in prisons. Treadmills, or tread wheels as they were called, were used in penal servitude as a form of punishment. And you go, yeah, that's exactly what I feel like when I'm on one. Some tread wheels were productive grinding weed to transporting water, but others were purely punitive in nature. Prisoners were punished by spending the bulk of their day walking up an inclined plane knowing that all their hard labor was for nothing. The only hope the prisoner had was that someday in the future he'd have paid his debt to society and be set free. But he couldn't even look on his labor at the end of the day and know that if nothing else, at least I've been productive. 
And I think that's a good image for one way we can approach, try and approach favor with God. Unfortunately, for, for, for too many people, religion feels like you're kind of running on a treadmill. They're working and doing this and doing that, but you're not getting anywhere. There's a better way. It's in the way of the gospel. Jesus Christ has set you free and free indeed, and you are no longer sentenced to be chained to the treadmill of sin and failure. He's paid the ransom demanded for your release from sin. And you can now walk in the freedom of the glory of the sons and daughters of God. But I ask you, Christian, because we fall back into this. I say we. Are you on the performance treadmill? And you're frantically running all over the place trying to get God's acceptance. Have you exchanged the security in Christ alone with the uncertainty of the performance treadmill? It's exhausting. Get off the performance treadmill. Stand in His grace. Because our security does not rest in whether we're religious or irreligious. Our security rests in Christ alone. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for that wonderful truth that it is in Christ alone as we're going to sing about right now. Help us to latch on. And there's the words that just fall off our lips. And we can sing them maybe mindlessly, but I pray we truly embrace what it means to have put a faith in you for salvation, but our walk with you to be all about in Christ alone. That's where our security is, and we live out from that. Speak into our lives. Challenge our hearts. Encourage us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.